Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Bumblebee. Let me tell you something. I drive it on pick the car. Car pick the drive. It's a mystical bond between man and machine. It's a mystical bond between man and machine. They will need you. This is why you're here, B. You know, beat music can help you say what you're feeling. Try this. With us are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How you doing? Theo Lee of the New Century Multiverse. Hello. And Jesse Ferguson of Recorded Tomorrow. Hey, hey. And, of course, my usual co-host and wife, Sharon Shaw. Hello. <clears throat> Unlike the Spider-Verse show, I have a massive screed to start this one off with, taking you back through the history of the Transformers to lend us all perspective on how we got here. This is the seventh Transformers movie, not the sixth. Given the habit of each subsequent Bay film for entirely contradicting the events and lore of the previous movie, we may as well count the 1986 animated movie among the rest. So let's look at what continuity has been so far. We shall start off with the 1984 animated show where the story goes a little something like this. You join us as the war on Cybertron rages on. Oh god, this is gonna kill me if I gotta do the whole thing as prime. <coughs> we, the Autobots, fled to Earth. The Decepticons pursued us. We crashed and took a four million year snooze. Yeah, they they were they crashed in like Paleolithic times and then just like chilled. There's no actual given reason why that had to be the case. Well, to be fair, there were no machines. On Earth was chilling at that time. Yeah. So. And Beast Wars apparently took place afterwards, but between. I don't know. Meanwhile, back on Cybertron, Shockwave presides over a robot planet that might be heavily populated with non-biological life forms, or it could be entirely empty. We haven't decided yet. 
Now we are awake and continue the fight in 1984. Then, in the distant future, the year 2005, Megatron killed Optimus Prime and was himself killed so that Hasbro might continue the toy line, no longer beholden to the now-exhausted Diaclone and Microman Japanese toy lines. Megatron is dead. Long live Starscream. Starscream is dead. Long live Galvatron. You are our leader, Ultra Magnus. Here is the Matrix. You are our leader, Hot Rod. Here is the Matrix. Unicron is destroyed. Long live Galvatron. We returned to Cybertron, and there was much rejoicing. If you remember, the last shot in uh, the original animated movie is, like, really terrifying. It's like six Transformers standing in a circle going, Till all are one. And it just, like, zooms out and out on a dead robot planet. (laughs) Starscream is back, and he's a ghost. That was, like, season three of Transformers? Uh, Optimus Prime returns, and there was much rejoicing. And that's about all I'm going to say about the original series. I I really still love that 86 film. Well, they didn't have enough energon to animate all the people, so... (laughs) They didn't. And now on to the Bay films. In the beginning, there was the cube. (gasps) Oh my god! Do they come energon? Is that how new Transformers (laughs) get made? (laughs) What?! Okay, that's derailed it somewhat. I apologise, it just it just came... The only head. person who can answer that one is Michael Bay. Do they come Energon, Michael? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, speaking of things that are not friendly for, uh, for Children, kids, yeah. you're, you're reading this... Never ever read Transformers fanfiction, Sharon, just oh. don't. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so in the beginning there was The Cube, and then Megatron arrived on Earth thousands of years ago looking for it the cube and was frozen in ice discovered by a man named Witwicky. We the Autobots arrive now in 2007. Bumblebee lost his voice. The chosen one is an annoying boy who wants to have sex with a hot babe. We couldn't do girl Transformers. That concept made no sense. An Xbox 360 and a Mountain Dew vending machine turned into Transformers. Did you know about these many American products? So, so Xbox 360s and Mountain Dew. They can be that Transformers. Makes sense. They can be Transformers. Women? No. no. Don't, don't talk bollocks. Okay, look. Transformers have no gender, okay? That is why... Why they're all boys. They're all boys, and some of them actually have dicks that are guns. Okay. They're all one gender, and that gender is Michael Bay. And by the end of the film, Megatron (laughs) is dead. He also killed the only coded black Transformer, a racist stereotype. Bumblebee got his voice back. He wanted to transform into a sex table for the boy and the hot babe, and there was much rejoicing. That's the first Transformers film. Now on to the second one. Not many people know this, but the Transformers were on Earth back in Paleolithic times. We created life and were worshipped as gods. Megatron is still alive in 2009. Bumblebee still speaks through the radio. The only coded black Transformers are racist stereotypes. Black people, stop complaining. We think you're funny. We finally have girl Transformers. But they have nothing to do. Now the annoying boy wants to have sex with a different hot babe. But she's a Decepticon, and she behaves whorishly. Optimus Prime is dead, and here is the Matrix. Optimus Prime is alive again, because of the Matrix. 
Not many people know this, but mankind found Transformers during the moon landing in 1969. Now the annoying boy has a different hot girl babe girlfriend. Hang on, I'm going no, backwards. No, this was the hot babe at the college. This is the second one. Oh God, I'm so confused. Too many hot babes. <laughs> But anyway, the more annoying boy has a different third hot babe girlfriend because Megan Fox wouldn't work with Michael Bay anymore. So they broke up off camera and Sam's mom doesn't like her. But even with this new girl who looks amazing and takes care of him like he's her tween son, he still isn't happy. In fact, he appears to be having a mental breakdown. That's not funny, folks. We won't address that. This is my mentor, voiced by Leonard Nimoy, who voiced Galvatron. I shot my mentor in his head. Megatron is dead. I ripped out his spine. You humans are our friends. Salutes. <sighs> Film 4. You humans hunted us all down and executed us all. I am Optimus Prime and I am horribly affected by PTSD. Also not funny, folks. We won't address this. Not many people know this, but Transformers were on Earth around the time of the dinosaurs. Mark Wahlberg is an inventor. A 20-year-old man wants to have access to his 17-year-old daughter's vagina. He has a legal defense for this in his wallet, but this doesn't satisfy Mark Wahlberg. They argue over his daughter's vagina for about half the movie. Megatron is alive. Now he is Galvatron, not voiced by Leonard Nimoy. The only coded Asian Transformer is a racist stereotype. Cybertron is destroyed. So is half of Beijing. Oh my god! Did you know about these many Chinese products? I am going to the Transformer gods, and I am going to make them pay. Now we cut to film five. I Not- think he should take it up with Michael Bay, personally. Not many people know this, but the Transformers were King Arthur's knights. I crash-landed on Cybertron. Not nearly as destroyed as we may have led you to believe. I briefly attacked the Transformer gods. Now I am their puppet to make Bumblebee pay for some reason. All the Autobots have been hunted down and executed now by the humans. But they sent the Decepticons to Decepticon jail. And then they let them out, like the Suicide Squad. So that they can say abusive things, dance quite racistly, and die. Bumblebee can now talk. This is Bumblebee's true voice. This is just the temp track voice laid down by a sound technician. Now I'm good again. We must defeat Cybertron. Not many people know this, but Bumblebee fought in World War II. And he killed Nazis outside of Winston Churchill's house. And Hitler was killed by a transforming watch. The only coded gay Transformer is a wacky English butler who can't transform. The true chosen one is a rapping underwear model from Boston. And he wants to have sex with Star-Lord's mother. And she is the last of the Witwickens. <sighs> because Shia LaBeouf wouldn't work with Michael Bay anymore, so Sam died off camera. And the Witwickens are a, a, <laughs> a sacred bloodline featuring everyone who has ever been smart enough or good enough to change the world, including Albert Einstein, Frederick Douglass, and Harriet Tubman. Black people, stop complaining. We just said your heroes were special. Mark Wahlberg is gifted Excalibur for being so special. The Earth was Unicron all along. We will address this in the next movie. We will not address this in the next movie. Michael Bay will not direct any more Transformers movies. And there was much rejoicing. I believe that gets us up to date, folks, in case you're wondering what got scrapped in the Bumblebee film-ing. So... <clears throat> but the real Unicron is the friends you met along the way. <laughs> it turned out racism was his Unicron. 
This farcical approach to continuity is oddly freeing, and it's clear at certain moments while watching Bumblebee that it is not everything the original sixth, sixth movie was supposed to be, namely a prequel to the Bay series. Instead, it is so much more than what was intended, and with a new director in Travis Knight and the new writer in Christina Hudson, this team have accomplished not only the first watchable, first halfway decent live-action Transformers movie, but one that is actively good. If you look at the popularity of the Bay series, the first two films did well in America, but then interest began to die off with fewer tickets sold every time, and in the rest of the world, a lot more people started attending, peaking at film four, with it being effectively a strip show for China, but plummeting in all territories with film five, which, if you actually watch it, isn't as gross as the others, just stupid. In effect, they have hurt their brand with low quality output for too long, and that made them a lot of money, but peaked and then subsided, leaving them with little recourse but to change tactics. The slasher movies of the 80s did that, only their law of diminishing returns was dealing in far smaller amounts of money. Bumblebee is the equivalent of X-Men First Class if we had 11 years and 5 movies of a similar quality to X-Men 3 and Apocalypse, with no halfway decent films to interrupt that turgid flow. For years it was just painful to think about this series because the movies coming out seemed so spiteful and they willfully disregarded all the good things they could be not just in terms of the rich seam of characters they had never yet mined but just in terms of good storytelling and filmmaking that even DC have now caught on to but now it feels like hopefully like we won't be going back there again it's a little bit easier to look back on them with a, a critical eye but without that burst of frustration Recently, I re-edited the first 2007 Bay film to remove the leery shots, the dead-end plot strands, the racism, the jokey bits that just go on and on, and the toxic, poisoned masculinity, the view on men that just gets worse and worse throughout the series, peaking at four and actually receding at five. Like I say, it's less gross. I wanted to see if what was left over would function as a sort of a follow-up to Bumblebee which is itself kind of a remake. That meant trimming out 31 minutes of it to bring it down to about an hour and 46. It's much easier to watch now, it's less exhausting, so the end sequence is actually kind of engaging. But on the whole, the film is thin and shallow with nothing to hold on to, no human relationships or drama, just rushing between setup and set pieces. We're not about to sing Bumblebee's praises merely because it achieved the industry standard of not being a stupid, racist, misogynist pile of bad, but because, as we learned from my version of 1 and his version of 5, a Michael Bay film without those things, even the best of them, is still incoherent and hollow. Bumblebee replaces those wretched elements with the components of a small, personal, effective drama and it was exactly what the series needed, not just right now, when it may be too late to establish this new direction for the series in a lucrative fashion that will satisfy Hasbro enough to do sequels of a similar kind, but at every step of the way since 1984, Transformers as a concept needed the Bumblebee movie. They're calling an army. I've seen firsthand these things really are. Bumblebee.
there is only one way to end this war. You must protect Earth and its people. Take it down! My back, me! One thing that is abundantly clear, as Bob Chipman said in his review of Bumblebee, its strong points are not that it contains authentic references to the original Transformers cartoon. That's just the garnish. That's the source. If the Bay films have been littered with Soundwave looking like he should, or the original Teletron 1 voice replicated rather than confusingly ugly bullshit that they dealt in instead, it would have been like eating ground chuck covered in tasty barbecue sauce. Still, fucking disgusting, but at least you could swallow it. Sauce alone won't make something great. The meat of it has to be high quality. And Bumblebee is a deliciously prepared burger with just the right amount of sauce. Over the past year, YouTuber Lindsay Ellis has been assembling a series of analysis pieces on the Bay Transformers movies. They are absolutely fascinating, and she manages to extrapolate an astonishing amount of coding from within the rotten framework of these blockbusters. That is highly recommended viewing for all of you. It is called the whole plate I hate the whole plate <laughs> just one thing she posited was that these get considered science fiction when in fact they're more like fantasy instead of elaborating upon concepts as to how things work and using that as a framing device to tell a story about people the way that sci-fi works it invokes mythical artifacts and world building and most of the films revolve around a race to get those artifacts there's lore and history and Transformers nerds delight in storing it away and this is another major trapping of fantasy. So in effect, Bay Movie 5 was doing the right thing in embracing that. It's just that what came out was meaningless because if you don't care about anybody in the fantasy, then the events don't matter, regardless of scale. Bumblebee's remit is to state that fantasy is going on and here is why you should care about this one little player in that fantasy and the girl he comes to rely on. What are you? Where did you come from? Okay, it's okay. Oh, who would be? Charlie. Charlie Watson. I'm 18. Today. Actually, it's my birthday today. What's your name? You don't you don't know or you don't have a name. You sound like a little bumblebee. I'm gonna call you that from now on. Bumblebee. That's your outfit too. So what are the clear influences that you can see at work in Bumblebee? It felt extremely mid to late 80s sci-fi movie to me. I grew up watching things like Short Circuit and um, Flight of the Navigator and Daryl and stuff like that on TV. And it really had that tone for me. I agree. I also felt like the whole time I was watching the movie, I felt like this is like Iron Giant, but with a happy ending. Um, I got a lot of influence over that with the, you know, the robot, alien robot that lost its memory, um, that, you know, was turned against the evil corporation and or not the evil corporation, but the, you know, the military was turned against it and made it almost go bad. And the the befriending of the of the child, the outcast child with everything. Um, there are lots and lots of really big parallels there. 
Iron Giant a little bit of- does have a happy ending. It's a bittersweet ending, and well, it leaves yeah. you on the sad for quite a long time, the, the bitter part of it, and then gives you yeah. some sweetness. Whereas Bumblebee, I think, kind of, it doesn't hold that bitterness quite so long. But there's right. a little bit exactly. of, it's, it's still bittersweet at the end. There's that parting. People were crying. Well, a bit. That, that, to me, contributed to that feel of those mid-80s films, because that... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Daryl has to... Does Daryl go back to Robot Town? I forget. I think... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, he I lives at Westworld. I I can't remember. It's so long since I've seen it, but it's not an entirely happy ending. Well, E.T. goes back to his home planet, a bit of sweet again. Exactly. Fight of the Navigator has a bit of sweetness to it. According to my mother, I spent many years of my early childhood in tears saying, he's going home! And that was the thing that (laughs) broke my heart about so many films and TV shows. And Uh that that really did seem to be the, the fundamental element of... So much TV at that time as well. If you look at things like Incredible Hulk and Littlest Hobo and... Yeah. Littlest Hobo's got such a... Like, Highway to Heaven? Yep. And okay. Quantum Leap followed on from those as well. This yep. idea of, of somebody coming in and they have this incredibly intense 45-minute relationship or half an hour <laughs> in the case of the Littlest Hobo. And then at the end, he fucks off and goes off MacGyver, to the MacGyver, the A-team. Thank yeah. you, Senor MacGyver. You saved our village. Absolutely. It's, it's repairing the world in project form. Inexpensively travelling America. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Mad Max did that a lot, too. Yeah. Mm. Goodbye, Max. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got to be moving on. Mm. But I identified with that really, really heavily because I was moving around a lot when I was a kid. I thought that's what life was all about. You went from place to place, you made some friends, yeah, you, you did some good stuff, had some adventures, and then went off to somewhere else. <laughs> be pretty eventful if that was what life was actually like. Yeah. There's a bit of How to Train Your Dragon. Mm-hmm. In the, the relationship between a, a, a young... Uh, human who can't quite fit in and this uh, a large dangerous creature Mm. who is nonetheless friendly Mm. but Mm. has the potential to just trying to to teach this large clumsy dangerous thing to operate within this delicate world where everything is breakable and killable and I, i really like the way that she she didn't Treat Bumblebee like 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 a like a little sibling. Yeah, there's there's a tenderness, but also a a kind of like mutual respect between them um, that really uh, it, it's hard to describe if you haven't actually seen some of those scenes. And I think it's kind of telling that so much of our experience with Transformers has been colored by Bay's like nihilistic just totally hateful, I don't like anyone milieu of, of how everyone interacts with everyone, that just like some basic like personal affection between a robot and a girl who likes to fix stuff. You know, everyone reacts to like, oh yeah, Bumblebee can get it. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, I, no, it's, it's just possible for people to like each other. I, I, they don't have to like each other that much, but... <laughs> I do get that. I understand when one of the strongest influences for me that, that it felt like to me, and this may mean nothing to any of you, but did anybody read any Girl and Her Horse stories when they were teenagers or younger than teenagers? Yes. Like, just so many horsey girl stories that I used to mm-hmm. read and that was kind of what this felt like to me that she finds him and fixes his hoof the theme of big dangerous creature that gets befriended by 
somebody who is innocent enough not to see them as dangerous immediately, who will offer them enough compassion to mitigate that potential danger and give them a, a channel to be more supportive. I will come back to that in a bit when we talk about the, the romance element. A big, potentially scary living beast that you have to trust and work with. Yeah. A friend that you're attached to, you're aware that you're different, but your focus is mainly on how you're the same. They definitely have a bit of the, the black stallion sort of, we, we've been thrown together by circumstances and now we have to sort of understand how how each one of us works while we try to improve ourselves where, I mean, they're not getting ready for a big race, but it's it's a very similar sort of journey to, you know, boy and, you know, boy and his horse, girl and her horse. I mean, there's even like a little bit of the karate kid in terms of how you've got beats where, okay, this is where we meet the mean kids and the awkward social setting and how she feels a little bit like an outcast. It's hard to, other than the obvious Iron Giant parallel, it's hard to like nail down one specific thing because this movie really does feel like it's trying to evoke the the feeling of being one of those 80s emblem films without kind of wallowing in it too much it's a it's a tricky balance to hit it is and they do have a slight it doesn't quite feel like the 80s everything's a little bit too bright and a little bit too sharp sharp and the edges aren't fuzzy as in, like, the, the furniture and things are actually crisp-cut, clean lines instead of everything <laughs> being slightly rounded. Mm. But it does feel like they're trying to recreate that sense of 80s movies, which I think is quite smart. If you're trying to twang the nostalgia string without being too obvious about it. I disagree about the the 80s look that they went for because it felt very it looked very familiar to me. I grew up uh, in the 80s. I was in single digits, but I remember it uh, quite a lot. Uh, um, a Sharon experienced um, 80s in England, which yeah. looked a lot crapper than 80s in America. Yeah, right, fair point. <laughs> yes, <laughs> my, my 80s may have been residual 70s. <laughs> yes, particularly the the interior of Charlie's house. I lived in a house that looked like that on the inside. But but yeah, Stranger Things looks very familiar to me. Uh, the, the the American eighties might look a, a different flavor than you know British eighties, but the, it's very spot on. It's very accurate. I mean, I, the interior of Charlie's house is like I lived there. That was my house. That was my ugly furniture, and that was my ugly carpet. The most uh, uh, authentic British eighties film that I can think of is Sing Street and uh, Son of Rambo. That that both of those really feel authentic. Scarily so. It cannot be understated how much of a cue this takes from the Iron Giant. I'm, I'm not even, I haven't made a list of these, but superficially speaking, not even superficially, like in terms of detail, a robot comes from space, crash lands on Earth, gets a bump on the noggin, forgets a lot of who he is, but retains a certain level of childlike uh, curiosity and uh, interest in learning. Meets a young person, you know, kind of learns how to be from that young person. There's a the Cold War is on. It's kind of perfect that the Cold War is like in in its opening salvo in the Iron Giant, and it's just rounding out in this. It's like they bookend the uh, the Cold War era. You know, when he gets part of his memory back at the end, he just remembers 
Oh yeah, I'm a killing machine, and starts blasting these uh, uh, aggressive troops that have brought this uh, uh, reaction out of him, and his eyes go red. And their aggression is all exacerbated by fear of the Russians. And this isn't accidental, and neither do I think that it's stealing. The Iron Giant wasn't seen by anybody. Frankly, you know, it it is important that that stuff gets seen. It's highly appropriate that it's been replicated by animation fans who saw this, loved it, and want to convey that, and want to bring that to more people. That's an ideal continuation of the chain. At this stage, with his cameo in Ready Player One, uh, and this, it feels like a Spielberg-produced Iron Giant remake in live action directed by Brad Bird should happen and would be actually quite popular. Like, he's entering into, like, people know who this guy is now and this would actually be popular because of nostalgia rather than just being ignored at the time. Two others it reminds me of are the Hayley Steinfeld film Edge of Seventeen, which is bloody fantastic about a teenage girl who learns to stop being quite so much of an asshole. And, of course, E.T. I think that part of the reason that it sort of got, like, um, sent out when it did is I don't know that the studio ever really had much confidence in just Transformers being good. With this, you've got someone who's doing everything very, very polished, and it seems like they cut back on a lot of the extraneous stuff in post-production or in rewrites because the... uh, Okay, so I swear Duke, like the Duke scar from G.I. Joe, that's the (laughs) scar that John Cena has, Hmm. and there's no way that's an accident. And there's just a couple, like, scenes where you have John Cena interacting with one of his buddies, and there seems to be a bit more of that that there, that there was supposed to be in the movie, or just bits and pieces that feel like they've been trimmed to the bone that were maybe supposed to set up more of something, but instead, probably to just, you know, cut down on running time, they, they decided to just pare things down. And apparently the, the writer-director of... of Edge of Seventeen, Kelly Freeman Craig. She apparently did some like uncredited work on rewrites and and reshoots sort of stuff as well. Really? To, yeah. So <laughs> I like, did not know. That. I, I think I think they really were trying to hone in on, on the the girl and her robot stuff, sort of after the fact of like, okay, well, look, you know, the la- uh, the last night didn't do well, you know, so we'll just we'll just focus in on this, and then we'll kind of dump it wherever and maybe it'll make its money back and if it doesn't then you know whatever it was well it was a crowded holiday what were you gonna do um but it's kind of distressing to see that travis knight really does know how to put these things together and he never he never excels in any one particular sequence more so than just you know being the best transformers movie ever made but it's it is kind of disheartening seeing it's like wow this is just really really well put together why couldn't we have just done this the first time it's important here to just take a moment to appreciate the deft handling of that opening sequence and how much multi-layered information is going back and forth depending on the viewer Let's count up the different kinds. If you're a total newcomer, and especially a child, then the war on Cybertron looks thrilling and seems to involve a lot of big personalities and very distinct-looking, colourful robots engaged in some kind of Star War. You want to know more. 
If you're a parent, you can just enjoy the fact that it's not too horrendously violent and nauseating to look at. In fact, just seeing the PG certificate made me content, because that meant a specific remit of not aiming at gross frat boys. If you vaguely remember the old shows, you'll get a little tickle of nostalgia. If all you know is the Bay films, it's close enough to not feel alarmingly different, but with a renewed freshness that makes it feel like an evolution, or a step away from what we've now seen for 12 but achingly slow hours and 41 interminable minutes. It's a statement of intent. And if you're a kid who hasn't seen many of the films, or any of the films, but you've seen a lot of the other more modern Transformers cartoons, or animated shows, like Prime, or Robots in Disguise, or Transformers Animated, or Rescue Bots, or Combiner Wars, or Titans Return, or Power of the Primes, or Cyberverse. It's very important as an adult to not underestimate how important those animated shows are to kids as their window into Transformers. But if you are one of those kids, then you'll briefly see something that looks connected to that. Something that looks like, a, again, an evolution, a step forward of it. And best of all, if you're a long-time G1 Transformers fan, you'll go, Oh shit, it's Braun! Oh shit, it's Ironhide! It's Ratchet! It's Wheeljack! And later on, oh, it's Cliffjumper! Oh no. If you're someone who gives a shit about female representation, you'll be like, Ah, RC. Maybe they'll do something with her later on. Otherwise, why would they put her there? Oh shit, that's Shockwave! Mom! Mom, that's Soundwave! And Ravage! And he said the thing! I don't care! And back there you've got some Seekers, and one of them might be Skywarp. And Acid Storm is a Conehead, that's a deep cut. And oh god, Optimus Prime doesn't have lips, and for the first time he looks, talks, and moves authentically! But then, after that quick burst of orgasmic pleasure, they do the brave thing and pull back from the nostalgia source and deliver a really great, meaty movie that they have faith in the qualities of. That's the way it should be, and all that fan service is threaded through a very visually dynamic and clear sequence that is actually the setup background plot of the film, not just, hey, look at this thing you know, Ready Player One. I was going to ask, actually, this is the second question. Uh, what does Travis Knight coming from a background in animation bring to Bumblebee? If you guys ha out there listening haven't heard our Kubo and the Two Strings show, it's one of the finest mm -hmm. animated films of the past decade. He has been working with Leica since the beginning. I believe he was uh, part of Coraline, uh, but that was his first directorial film. This is his first live-action film. What might his background in animation have brought? I respect for the source material. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's kind of been this this attitude that you, you, people who really love the Transformers franchise, we recognize that it's an inherently silly concept. I mean, it's ridiculous on its face. <laughs> and the further you dive into it, the more ridiculous it gets. But that's why we love it. And we, we like to take the ridiculousness and put a serious face on it, but while still, you know, recognizing that it, it's deeply silly rather than, say, the Alliance of Magicians, who demand to be taken seriously. It, it's a respect for the silliness, and then putting some actual feeling behind it is... It, it's, it's why uh, the, the IDW comics did so well, 
and Aquaman. It's why Bumblebee is is so good. Respects that it's it's silly, but also respects that there's characters that people care about. I think as well, not so much animation because that doesn't automatically make it a kids movie, but his background in working in movies that need to appeal to children. There is a trust that the story and the characters will hold the audience's attention enough and you don't need that let's throw all the robots at the screen let's try and blast everybody's adrenaline into outer space which is the thing that I'm always criticizing Bay for Mm -hmm. because he thinks he seems to think that you've got to keep everybody's biochemicals at 100% yeah, their adrenaline to needs to be constantly engaged. pumping so exactly. when people are just talking in a room the camera's spinning around them and the, the sunlight's blazing and the colours are super bright and it's like <laughs> oh they're just talking for fuck's sake yeah absolutely no, we were watching, this shit just got real uh, we were watching <laughs> 2 today Transformers 2 yes sir. and yeah, oh was it yesterday it See, feels like it's still going on it does feel like it's like going PTSD going <laughs> but there's there's a scene a very straightforward supposedly tender scene where Michaela and Sam are just having a conversation and the camera's doing that ridiculous thing where it keeps spinning around and around and around and around them and I was just sat there going, I am seasick. I am just feeling ill watching I think it was either Lindsay or Patrick H. Willems who did a a feature on why, like, Bay makes every shot seem like it's important and so you just don't remember. It was Lindsay definitely talked about it. It, Mm -hmm. If everything feels important, it's of... Equal non-importance by the end. You forget everything that happened in the film. But here's the problem. If you come from a background of commercials and music videos, you can do that because you have a maximum of five minutes, more likely one or two, to get your point across to the audience. If you have to sustain them for two hours or more, if you insist on making your films ridiculously long, to have that tone to have that every one of these scenes is incredibly important you must constantly pay attention you exhaust everybody and what Travis Knight has done with this is the antithesis of that which is to trust people to follow the pace to allow the film to have a a breathing process to it where there are scenes that are emotionally intense and there are scenes which are less so and they let you go up and come down and it feels much more natural another thing I think that Travis Knight bringing coming in from the animation background was a benefit is that in animation, you don't get anything for free and mm-hmm. everything takes, everything takes a long time. Everything is a lot of effort. So every shot has to be meticulously planned out. There's no such thing as fix it in post in animation. Yeah. So the, the scenes like you have to have a clarity of vision and you have to have things framed just so you know, so that you can convey what you need with as little as possible because every second takes days mm, yeah, to absolutely produce. Right, and that means that everything's intentional as well. Everything mm-hmm. that's in there is there because he wants it in there. Right. There's there's weight to the Transformers in Bumblebee. And I mean that yeah. in the the sense that they feel like they occupy physical space. That when they hit the ground, you can feel the thunk. You can see the dust fly up. If they scrape along the floor, you can see the concrete split. 
you get the feeling of them actually being there and that is done by visuals it's done by sound it's done by the emotional resonance that's created from the fact that they're actually doing things that mean something when they fight mm-hmm. each other it's like the raid or an MMA fight just slowed down to give that mm. sense of slow weight yeah. rather yeah. than that spiraling which never really felt like they were connecting at all absolutely it mm-hmm. felt much more like Pacific Rim and also when yeah. they fight you were with Bumblebee for that fight almost all the uh, Transformers fights in the Bay films you're on the ground watching this chaos go on around you so there's whole scenes that go by where uh, Sam's running around going ah! and like the other robots are spiraling through the air and it's just dangerous to be on the ground whereas with this it was like no you're with Bumblebee as he's trying desperately to keep Shatter and what was the other guy's name? Dropkick. Shatter and Dropkick when B's fighting them you're with him and you get the sense of scale from what's around them rather than human beings running around screaming as they experience 9-11 times a thousand. However, I forgot the names there because they never even call each other Shatter or Dropkick. Back in the cartoon, they're like, Shatter, you've got to come and see this. What's that? Dropkick in stores now? (laughs) (laughs) Their slight failing was that they didn't characterize those guys enough. Relative to Bumblebee, the villains come off as wholly black-hearted, and one of them's cunning and the other one's a bit more direct. That's another element of Travis Knight's background that would easily be mistaken for just pandering to 80s nostalgia, in that, okay, yes, you want to have the original Transformers designs because it looks like the original designs. It'll make the fans happy. Well, no, those designs were that way for a reason. They were mm-hmm. they were created as silhouettes to be recognizable for a reason, and the reason he's doing that is not as much to to cater to you know fans it's because he understands he understands visual storytelling i could you know i could probably like um retell the sequence of the bumblebee action scene where he's fighting the the airplane robot in the canyon when his voice box gets you know ripped out yeah the the guy who's not starscream exactly but where you can't really remember what happened in a bayformers movie fight scene like that sequence has different stages and elevations and power dynamics that change and it's because knight understands how to frame foreground and background elements it's he knows how to track a character he Um, shows you the geography and then they interact on the geography exactly so like when you're when you're dealing with the finale and you have Haley steinfeld's charlie look up at the tall place and there's a ladder-like structure that leads to the place where she could do something you're like oh we're finally coming back to the whole diving thing Mm -hmm. which was a character beat that he set up earlier and and so again it's not just to appeal to the fans and it's not just something that makes the action easier to follow it's it's just basic filmmaking that again we could have just had actual filmmaking this whole time from a storyteller as opposed to just a salesman of a a feeling which is what bay is doing he just sells the feeling of you're experiencing something cool it's the coolest thing i've ever seen ah, everywhere this is easily a hundred times cooler than armageddon i swear to god that's you that is <laughs> that's your girlfriend and your mom and your dad. Which is probably why those movies made a lot of money, is because people left feeling like they'd experienced something cool, even though they had no idea how to, like, 
retell the story that they just saw. You could have had both. <laughs> it's you could have had both. He's a drug dealer. <laughs> Michael Bay is a drug dealer. He's selling the high of being overwhelmed by what he puts on screen and causes to happen in your head. With his, you know, slick style, his nice hair, his good at meetingsness. I mean... <laughs> So we're not going to belabor the point about the difference between the Michael Bay films and this. This show ran long, and there's going to be a big extra show of material that ended up on the cutting room floor, where we talk about Bay a lot. But his films have been long documented as objectifying women, usually just as sex objects, sometimes as the buffoonish mother who does nothing for the plot but just says embarrassing things and briefly Frances McDormand trying to maintain her dignity as strict mommy in charge while the men are either brave soldiers in the minority or disgusting pussy hungry nerds in the majority or just complete weirdo creeps wang deep wang deep wang you're not getting it deep throat watergate talking code to you so in contrast How are men and women treated in Bumblebee? You've got a distinct blending of what I think stereotypical masculinity and femininity would be presented as. So, for example, and these are are fairly small things, but Charlie's stepdad is not currently working. Her mother is the breadwinner for the house. She's a nurse, which is a caring profession, which is stereotypically considered to be uh, a feminine one. Charlie is leaning more towards mechanical engineering rather than people engineering because she takes more after Mm. her dad. But her actions towards Bumblebee are more like she's a nurse rather than a, a, a mechanic. And she's, you know, the whole thing about... Because he straddles the line between person and machine. Exactly. But that it mm. goes beyond just that as well, because her dad took the same approach. She mentions about him putting the music on when he was uh, working on the cars because it made the cars feel better. That's a nurse thing to do. So they take quite a lot of little tiny markers that I think would normally be stapled to one stereotype or the other and mix them up and play around with them and make them all human characteristics rather than particularly ascribing one or another to them. Hmm. I have a theory that whether consciously or not, Knight was taking a lot of the elements that are toxic in the Bayformers movies and deliberately tweaking them or inverting them. Like Sam Witwicky's character is a very entitled little, you know, brat. Um, Yeah. And and the and the the character in this who is maybe analogous to him in that he is also a young teenage boy who has a crush on a girl is very respectful of her boundaries he's very you know he'll listen like you you have the the iconic shot of like the two hands about to hold which is in the transformers movies that michael bay directed <laughs> but in this you know he's going in for the handhold she says no we're not there yet and he's like oh okay yeah sure sure respect the boundaries um you you have the the military guy who when he's making you know alpha male military decisions he's usually wrong you have just the just the fact that charlie as the main character is female and she's the mechanic and the athlete mm-hmm. i mean it's it's swimming but still she's a mechanic and an athlete and those are things that are again usually coded as well that's what the guys do they run the football and they fix the cars and 
and no, that's that's her thing. And it's never questioned that she's good at it or not. It's just does she have the means and the emotional like fortitude to be able to do X, Y, or Z at this particular moment? I actually really appreciated that that her mechanical aptitude was never once questioned. Mm. Unlike Michaela's, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. But that it was it was never no one at one point made any comment that like, oh, what are you doing working on cars or anything like that from the old guy that owns the junkyard to any of her friends or anything like that. It was it was never even brought up. It was never even um, acknowledged or or mentioned that it was out of the ordinary in any way. It was just this is a girl who's good at working on cars and that's part of her character and we're going to move on mm. there is a whisper of this is weird behavior coming from the mean girl but that is presented in such a way as to be less about you shouldn't be doing this because you're a girl as well you're not rich and it's that mm-hmm. you know your your car's a piece of shit you should get your dad to buy you another one. Oh wait no you can't it's you know what i mean it's it's not something that's just a natural part of what's said it's done on purpose to be cruel mm-hmm. it's also notable that she's earning her cars whether it's she's fixing up the old one that she was working on with her dad or she offers to i mean sam is like driving by what is it, that porsche dealership he's like oh dad mm-hmm. you're gonna buy me this super expensive car we're just middle american average middle class family you can afford that <laughs> But and she's given the car by the by the guy, but like she's fully intending. She's like, no, I'll work every day to pay off all the parts. She, again, she's never entitled. She never feels like she's mm-hmm. owed anything. Aside from at the beginning, where she's like, I demand my birthday present. I will need several thousand dollars. I believe that is standard for a seventeen-year-old girl. But when you take on board what's happened in the past few years, this doesn't come off like I demand that you give me all this stuff that I didn't earn. It's more like, Mom, I need you to prove to me that I still matter to you. Which, of course, is very hurtful to her mother. And by the end, both her mother and stepfather and brother get to fight in her corner to prove, not through monetary means, that they do care about her. While she behaves entirely selflessly in trying to help Bumblebee protect people, human and Autobot. She's always willing to put in the work, which is very refreshing in these movies which are so previously full of male entitlement and and just this this toxic sense of we are owed this thing and we are owed you and impotent mm-hmm. male entitlement as well like they, in the third movie they keep pointing out how useless sam is he, he can't get a job <laughs> because his only uh, experience is saving the world from decepticons <laughs> which is a very specific role <laughs> and these are troubled economic times where a lot of people who should be able to work are finding it really, really difficult to find and retain a job. It is right and proper that movies should be sympathetic to that. Hence, Charlie's stepfather doesn't work, and there appears to be no negative judgment in the movie upon that. On that note... <laughs> Indeed. the I think as well you've got this retelling of some of the incredibly minor and hidden positive elements of the first Transformers <laughs> they film. They hid them well. If, right, mm. just imagine, and if Alex had been able to do this with his edit... Oh, I tried. It would have been great, <laughs> but there just isn't enough material in there to do it. But if you could redo the first Transformers movie so that the focus is not on Sam, but is in fact on Michaela, that film suddenly becomes a lot more 
interesting and engaging and different. And it doesn't feel like it needs to be emphasised that way here because we are however many years on and we're, we're moving forwards. But taking the story of a girl who loves cars and really connects with them and has the skill and interest to fix them and really be involved with them and you've got the the father relationship emphasis there as well it does kind of feel like a bit of a mirror of that story but now told in the right way with (laughs) the guy not sidelined exactly but just Repositioned. Not yeah, not mm-hmm. needing to be the center of attention all the time. Yeah. Have any of you seen uh, Dan Olson's video on cinema narrative dissonance yes. and the tran- using the Transformers video as an example or the yep. Transformers movie as an example? Yeah, exactly. In the script, Michaela is is intelligent and skilled and meaningful and has shit to do. Mm. And mm-hmm. the camera says, no, 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 no. She's just here for you to ogle at. You carry on. We said this back when we reviewed the Bay films for when around about the time the fourth film came out. Megan Fox is trying her best to make this character more than she could be with Michael Bay filming her. There are many moments when she's sort of staring off into space, not in a kind of, oh, I'm bored, but in a kind of, oh, this shit's happening to me again. Like her frustration with Michael Bay, she's using it to express that her character feels trapped. She's thinking, her like her character is clearly thinking a lot more than Sam is. So when Sam's like, so do you, uh, like, you, you come here off? When she like smiles and goes, yeah, uh, sorry, uh, you, you're in my class? She's trying to make small talk with him, but she's clearly thinking about other stuff. Megan Fox is mm-hmm. one of the best things in that first film apart from the Steve Jablonski score she is a far greater actress than I think a lot of people give her credit for however on a brand new level allowed to work her magic encouraged to be charismatic and captivating and yet feel normal and relatable and like someone we might know or might have been or might be now Haley Steinfeld is absolutely fantastic in a way I have never seen her not be since True Grit, when she was 14 years old. She commands that movie. In a film where Jeff Bridges talking like this all the time. How do you act against that? And yet she does. When her character first turns up, Charlie's kind of odious. Like, she's, she's this grotty, angry teenager, and her journey is obviously to come back out from that and to make herself somehow endearing whilst shouldering the burden of being dislikable is quite a tightrope to walk. Well, she's... Takes an actor of calibre. She's grieving and repressing Mm -hmm. it. And it is very easy for repressed grief to come out to other people, for, for other people to perceive it as hostility because what they're looking for is for you to be getting back to a state where your emotions go up and down like everyone else's do. But when you're grieving and you haven't been able to process it properly, that's pretty much all you can feel. It consumes everything else. The way Charlie's positioned in the story, the way we approach her, she is effectively trapped in her grief. She's trapped in hostility. She says herself, I don't like the person I am now. And this is mirrored in Bumblebee because he can't remember the person he was before. Bee's trapped in a different kind of grief, tied in with his combat trauma, 
which manifests itself as this fear and extreme vulnerability, both emotional and physical. It's a measure of hypervigilance, which does show through during his curiosity, as he's reduced to this childlike character. And we're seeing a very distinct change in the, how he acts at the beginning and the end, where he is a competent, confident, skilled, brave warrior. He can't be that in the middle. Like her, he's stuck. He's lost the road, he's lost his purpose. And through what they go through together, they both return each other to their separate roads. B is able to return to his father figure, knowing who he is now, with that renewed purpose and a newfound connection with people. And Charlie's able to journey out into the world without feeling so horribly wounded by the departure of her father, carrying him and B with her in a car she made herself. characters feel a, a bit of a sense of guilt. Bumblebee obviously feels guilty for leaving Optimus when Optimus was, uh, you know, in a life or death situation. And Charlie, it, it's they don't make a huge meal out of it, but, you know, they, they mention that Charlie, she never feels like she got to say goodbye to her dad. So they're, they're both, they've got this feeling of guilt, which is why she can't really move on. Haley Steinfeld has this really tough job of her character is pushing people away because she hasn't been able to process her guilt. But as an actor, she has to bring the audience in. Mm. The first time we see Charlie is with that really, really tender moment right before she comes out of the bedroom and she touches the photo and says, good morning, dad. And, you know, you immediately know what's happening with her and kind of how you you know that she lost her dad and that she's really, you know, still, still really kind of not over it yet. And that puts us into her frame of mind so that when we come out and she is acting kind of shitty to the rest of the family, we immediately get why. And we side with her because we know what's going on with her. If they did, if it had opened up with her just coming out and being shitty, then it would have been like Scott Pilgrim. We would have been like, Oh, this she's, she's a little shit. But because we have that, that opening frame, that tender moment in, in the, in the beginning, you'd be like, Oh, she's grieving she's hurting right now and it gives you that immediate little gut punch and you're instantly on her side yeah i was ride or die as soon as she hit the air drum solo while she's brushing her teeth i'm like no okay <laughs> I, I, need this, I need this girl to succeed yes absolutely well that they she gets that push pull exactly right i think she she mm-hmm. is pushing people away and you can see that that ties in with her emotional state at the moment but also she gets those moments of reaching out to people and she isn't always reaching out to the right people and she isn't always reaching out in the right way but in part that makes it even more identifiable because we do that we we try and grab at the wrong things when we're feeling a certain way because we can't express what we're actually feeling and particularly since she's feeling that inability to move on that it looks to her like her mum is doing and mm. it looks to her like a brother is doing 
I really like that her uh, stepfather wasn't positioned as someone that she has to embrace. Mm-hmm. That you know, she he mm-hmm. comes off as as quite avuncular with her and like a friend, but it's not necessarily someone that it could replace. Exactly, it's yeah. more just a someone that you can look to for support and is part of your family without feeling like that the film is obliging you to accept this as, as but also, like, why can't she just be happy with this guy? There's never that sense of, well, he's also somebody that she, it would be acceptable for her to try and kick out of the family. She's yeah. not positioned as she's trying to revert them to their previous state before he came on the scene. And that's fine. That's good. That's what she should be doing. Okay, this is a juicy one, and it ties in with the whole paternal side of things, and in fact all relationships in the film. The character of Memo has been called useless in this film, like he lifts right out. It's also been highlighted for the robot-slash-girl romance, and may as well have been called The Shape of Asphalt. (laughs) (laughs) Familial love and intimate connection get quite complex within this film. Now, considering we've already mentioned the girl and her horse storyline, we can bring that stuff back into play. What are the various levels that we can see within this film of intimacy and connection? Okay, well, just to go back briefly to that horsey girl story Hmm. thing that I felt quite a strong vibe of from this... One of the things that was quite consistent in a lot of those stories is that you get somebody who... It's not always a bad relationship or a lost relationship with a father, but a horse makes a really useful transitional object for girls in their early to mid-teens trying to move out of that state of being kind of cosseted and protected by their dad and in a less complex symbolic story they transition to then being cosseted and protected by a husband but the problem with that is that they never get a phase of being able to work out oh actually I can protect myself and if you put a horse in the middle of all of that (laughs) then What you get is a period where your character can bond and work with a creature who is stronger than her, faster than her, can add their strength to hers so that she can go further and higher than she could have done on her own. But because it's not another person, it doesn't then become all tied up with that Individual, and it certainly doesn't get tied up with how her romantic relationships are going to progress from there on in. And maybe it was just the area that I lived in when I was a kid, but the teenage girls all being into horses was quite a thing. And that did seem to be that sort of consistent theme with them. All the girls I knew who were into horse riding and looking after horses and all that kind of stuff always seemed to be so much more independent and confident and and feel like they had a right to be going out in the world than the girls who didn't and that was something that I very much took to heart and and felt very inspired by and I got a sense of that in this that she's using not using, that's the wrong way to put it, but that that Bumblebee is providing her with a transitional object 
it didn't feel to me like it had the potential to be interpreted as a romantic relationship, certainly not by me, although obviously it has been by a lot of other people. But although he is sentient and although he is human-like, their relationship didn't seem to me to be one of equals. She's looking after him. He's lending her his strength, but they're not coming to each other on the same plane, if that makes sense. Whereas Memo, they are on the same plane. Their relationship is very, very early days, but they they kind of make that point with the whole, no, we're not quite there yet. It's He represents something she can reach out exactly. to. Exactly. It's, it's the potential. It's the what she can now move on to now that she's had that transitional object to help her through that really difficult phase. Yeah. Whereas if Memo had been the person that she'd been really bonding with and getting really intimate with, there would have been this slight tone of, yeah, but is this just redirected grief and is that relationship kind of doomed as a result? It sounds like for young teenage horse owners, once you've straddled a beast like that and actually managed to deal with the fairly terrifying height and strength and power that it represents... Shitty bullies at school just aren't going to bother you as much because you're like, yeah, you know what? You could not deal with this shit. So when you've put your life in an Autobot's hands and defied Decepticons together and lived to tell the tale about it, you cross a threshold. Which pretty much makes it the opposite of the Bay films once again because Sam is lost as a result of his connection to the Autobots. Sam dies as a result of his connection to the Autobots off-screen, unceremoniously. He's fucked. The importance of Memo is that he's a new adult attachment that she forms after she has lost a, an attachment that sort of represents the end of her childhood. She has a family, and so sort of reconnecting with them is important to her. I, I really appreciate that their sort of big moment as a family is them sort of trusting her and her allowing them to to help her which is an important step for both of them but that's part of a a unit that she was already a part of as as a kid as a minor it's it's a very it's very deliberately made clear that she is an adult she is 18 years old and it's also clear that while she and memo move in the same like school circle they haven't like met really and bumblebee's sort of role is getting her reused to forming attachments but being able to do that as she steps into a a new world as she's she's grown up now she's she's not got the protection of a unchanging home life to depend on because she's lost her father and so we're dealing with that sort of you know awareness of mortality and so being able to move on as an adult forming those relationships when you've become so aware that they can be snatched away from you that's that's important and i feel it's equally important that memo is not someone that will save her that she's not going to another you know father type figure who will be i will save you and protect you i guess you could argue that he sort of lifts out in that he doesn't greatly impact the story but i think it's just as important that he is emotional support for her and he is support for her even if she doesn't need him to save the day she still does need that bond that they are forming because again that's that's the next step to her her healing process and being able to go out into the world and and just be a person again as an adult another little detail that i loved 
The internet is created in this movie, but it's created by two thoroughly evil robots. And yet it's still the lesser of two evils, otherwise they'd have gone to Russia and given them the internet first. I'm, I'm not sure how the story would, would, would be different if he'd not lost his memory, like if he'd got damaged really bad but not lost, not lost his memory. I think his, he'd uh, be focused on, like, I've got to get to the blah, blah place. Yeah, he, there'd be a lot less faffing about, and the faffing about is what I was there for. Uh, especially when he started exploring the interior of the house, yeah. that that whole scene, I loved it. It was it, mm-hmm. you you could take it right out of the movie, and it wouldn't affect the story very much. But I loved it. It needed to be there because it it told you so much about B's uh, inherent curiosity, and uh, the way he was very apologetic to everything that he put into. <laughs> because he's non biological himself, uh, so he's like, "I'm sorry, coffee yeah. machine." Yeah, this is w- waving the plug at the dog. Like, can you explain this to me, organic thing, please? <laughs> uh, I love how you look- describe it as faffing about because the other five movies, it's all about you must get to here and find the MacGuffin and put it on the thing and save the universe. And yes, it's yes. all faffing about. It's all mm-hmm. plot. It's all MacGuffin. It's all chasing the thing to get the thing to do the stuff. Or there'll just be some flimsy excuse to see John Turturro in a jock strap, like one of those comedy scenes that goes nowhere and isn't funny and not one moment of it is actual like humans doing human things or this robot doing a very human thing like a a, a toddler or a dog would you know like a turner and hooch a dog that has personality or an et if you will getting into scrapes it just felt so much more it, it, it was that b was portrayed as he's conscious you know yeah. he, he's not ju- he's not just a, a big metal thing moving around you saw his like he almost sat down on the dog and then he was like oh 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 oh, i'm sorry i'm sorry are you okay 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 we're good we're good then he sits down on the couch and breaks it and you can see it in his face that he's oh i've effed up (laughs) and just the way they portrayed that without him saying a word was so good and that's Mm. all i wanted was just you know I think the word then, you, you were pretty much there with uh, um, consciousness, awareness. Mm-hmm. When you watch Michael Bay, you think you might think to yourself, especially by the time you get to the end of the fifth film, you don't people, do you? <laughs> you, no. like, you may not have peopled for a long time, if ever. Sharon, theory of mind? Theory of mind is the idea that, the, that when you become aware that you think things... And that you have things going on inside your head that aren't part of the outside world. And then you click that, oh, other people have that going on in their head as well. And everybody has this internal experience of life that's going on behind their eyes that you may never know about. And to create an animated character who can portray that internal life that internal experience and awareness that consciousness that's what Travis Knight has brought in the door that somehow Michael Bay has never really been able to to gear because his bumblebee if you think about it in terms of design, they're not wildly different. His bumblebee even had that little thing where the wings come round on his face to make his face look more like a bee. Mm-hmm. But his eyes were dead. 
Yeah. His face mm-hmm. was this metal. It was like the inside of a clock. Angle. Yeah, it, it wasn't telling us anything. You could see the face shapes, but there was no like there. There was some emoting going on. The the people doing the animation, like, you could see them almost like trying to sneak emoting in through the back door. <laughs> but it wasn't a prerequisite of what the film was trying to do. Like Bumblebee was supposed to be cute for the kids. There's many moments in this which are mirrors of things that happened in the original Transformers when B gets grabbed by the the feds and, and electrocuted and harpooned and like dragged down. That happens in the 07 version. But in the 07 version, it's like Bumblebee. And I was racking my brains to think about actual like reasons why Sam would be super protective of this alien that he's only just friggin' met and hasn't gotten to know and knows nothing about. And there's so much assumed stuff in Transformers 07 where you're just like, well, you know, he's the kind of the fun one and like he's mischievous and we know he's a robot long before Sam does. And also, we don't want to see the cute thing get hurt and electrocuted, and it's done in a deliberately manipulative fashion to make you sad for this thing. And it's like Bay's getting a cattle prod and poking the kids in the audience to make them cry, if uh, to, to make them emote. And it's like, this cattle prod isn't meant for you, frat boys. Everything else in this movie is meant for you, frat boys. Mm. But at no point is any actual human interaction going to be taking place. Sam treats Bumblebee like his property, which is why he has that big reaction to, you know, oh no, they're taking my, my thing. Car. And that's, uh, that's part of Knight versus Bay, like treating characters like characters, I guess. Sometimes I'm a jealous man. I just don't like other people touching my things! You're so very right. The difference between the two directors is like Knight and Bay. Um, but it's also kind of... It's kind of a fun little bit that Bumblebee is trapped by being too much in disguise. He's, disgu- he's disguised from himself, um, which is something we don't see necessarily a lot of. You know, a transformer being able to figure out who they are uh, isn't necessarily a a new beat, but this is a new twist on it as far as the movies go, since we already know what he is, but we get to see him go through that journey. And, of course, finding yourself is just one of those sort of universally approachable things that Amblin really traded on in the 80s with the sorts of movies that this is emulating anyway. Mm. Okay, so I'm talking about future films as an elaboration of this, and then we'll come back to some questions from the listeners. But we'll start with a question from Gideon, who asks, Although this film ties in with the Bayverse, uh, if a new Transformers... It doesn't, by the way, folks. There's actual moments in the film that are like, you know, this could have felt like it was a, a, a prequel to the Bay film. Simmons is in here. Sharon saw the whole film and didn't know Simmons was in there. He's there. His name, like, this is John Turturro. His character name appears on some guy's lapel. And I'm sure there was a lot more stuff in the original pitch for it. But he's kind of in the background. When the Transformers turn up at the end, that directly contradicts what happens in 07, where they turn up 20 years later. In the fifth Michael Bay film, The Last Night, which nobody's seen, he was a car that fought the Nazis. That most definitely didn't happen here, so it most definitely contradicts the original continuity. But it does it in a really clever way, in, in a way where it, it doesn't like rub your face in it, just if you go looking. It doesn't shit on, say, like if there are fans of the original films out there, it doesn't go, your stupid films are stupid and we've justified them. You have to look for it. And by the end I was going, you know what would be really cool? If he turns into the yellow Camaro, not for me, 
But for people now in their early 20s who grew up with that, and they were kids when they first saw Bumblebee as a Camaro, I want them to see their Bumblebee. And he did, and I went, that's really nice. I don't, I can't stand that movie and all of those movies, but for them, they get a little treat, and that is fine. It's absolutely fine. If you like the Transformers films but are not a horrible person yourself, that is fine. If you like those films but don't like this, that is not fine. You might be ill. Consult a doctor. <laughs> no, it's okay if you don't like Bumblebee. But seriously, there's some uh, people who I really know and like uh, going, nah, I can't be bothered to see this film. It'll just be like all the others. And it's like, no, 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 really. It must be clear by now what's different. But even if you haven't heard this show, that 94% it was out on Rotten Tomatoes is not for nothing. Considering the previous ones went 57%, Jumping up to 94, 93%, that's an earth-shattering change. Okay, Gideon goes on to ask, If a new Transformers continuity began with this film, where would they go from here? And by the way, I'm calling them the original animated movie from 86, so just the Transformers, the movie, if you will, then Bay Films 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and Bumblebee. You may as well not call this Transformers 6. It bloody isn't. It's technically billed as a spin-off, but it kind of feels like a spin-off the way... Wonder Woman was a spin-off of Batman v Superman, insofar as it entirely eclipses what came before. And it's it's not a prequel, it's 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 a new thing if you actually look at what they've done here. So that question got me thinking, and I didn't just want to like answer off the cuff. I sat down and wrote this stuff out. This is my pitch for the Arrival trilogy. Simply put, this is a trio of films designed to relaunch a solid new Transformers continuity. Paramount should focus on making just two more for the time being. None of this DCEU, oh, we've got 19 films on the slate. Two. Not 19, not five, two. No cinematic universes, no Rom Space Knight, no visionaries, no masks, no major Avengers-style big movies in the pipeline. Those will come later. Just leave the doors open, and if people love these three films put together, they will beg you to bring it to the next level. But even if you do, bring it to the next level do not forget the foundation that you're laying down here character over world building heart over spectacle that will be the thing that wins you the race in the end you tried to run a marathon on spectacle and you flagged by film four and then by five you were exhausted well you didn't do yourselves any favors by eating a big plate of pasta alfredo before you went out <laughs> Technically, they, the ate, whole they ate a whole Chinese meal. The whole, ate the whole meal. <laughs> okay, film two, made in the year 2020. Optimus Prime. Prime arrives on Earth a few weeks after Bumblebee, after he escapes the Decepticons on Cybertron that we see attack him in the flashbacks, but we never saw the conclusion of that fight. He beat them back and escaped, but barely, and it was a desperate struggle. This story is about a soldier and his discomfort in a world outside of battle. Take your cues from Captain America the Winter Soldier, but keep in mind this has to be accessible for kids. You'll have to tread a very fine line between impact and accessibility. Our human is Joe an Asian-American man of advancing years, because representation matters. 
He's fairly salt of the earth and will appeal to middle America, but he's also Chinese, so will appeal to that massive market. And the idea of Joe becoming friends with a symbol of Japanese fantasy is something the world needs. 18 years ago, Joe fought in Vietnam and lost every member of his unit in a mission that was otherwise a success. Joe got a medal and bullets in his leg, so he walks with labored pain and now drives a truck. He is lonely and isolated from the American people. He's experienced racism as well as terrible treatment of veterans and has decided his life will run smoother if he just stays in his cab. Prime's arrival leads to the destruction of Joe's rig, which was the red Peterbilt cab that we know and love. After some panic and communication, Prime disguises himself as the cab and tows Joe's cargo where it needs to go in return for Joe hiding him from the Decepticons. Prime is ashamed for his cowardice, but he must accept that he is outnumbered. We flash back to his early days as Orion Pax in his meeting on Cybertron with Megatron in the gladiatorial arena. Megatron's uprising and the Autobot resistance with Prime's mentor Sentinel Prime passing him the Matrix of Leadership. Not much, just enough to tell us who these guys are. Not a full-on prequel. General audiences care less about lore and more about being told a gripping story in the immediate. Prime and Joe look back on the decisions they made in war and the men and the Autobots who entrusted their lives to their leaders and subsequently died. They also hint at the uncomfortable reality that they were killing other people much like them. That war is more monstrous the closer you get to it. That was something horribly absent from the Bay films. This is about both soldiers forgiving themselves and Prime getting back on his feet. The finale should not be about Prime fighting Megatron. Maybe he fights Shockwave, who represents the cold, mechanical machine of war, something that, if left unchecked with mathematical precision, will reproduce conflict until everyone is dead. It must be clear that Prime is fighting to end the war, and Joe needs to help him and reconnect with civilian life. He can still be a trucker, but one that connects with a community. He also needs to be in a scenario where he has to hobble as fast as he can, and in a scenario where Prime tells him to not fight. Where Shellshock is taking over, Prime sees this and he tells Joe to stay put. That he can lay down arms. Similarly, Joe needs to find himself ready to fight when Prime desperately needs him. But it must be clear that he attains that readiness because he had Prime's support. You need to play You Got the Touch in the trailer, the original Stan Bush one, not a sad, slow, baleful one, or the Linkin Park sounding one from Fall of Cybertron. You got the touch! You got the power! And it needs to play at a triumphant moment in the film and resume at the end. Not just to stroke off the fans, but to make a statement of reassurance that this is the genuine article. It is a hard kick away from self-doubt and brooding and self-seriousness. Prime must fight with self-assurance and occasionally desperation, but never cruelty. I can tell you the exact point when the Transformers films got past the point of no return. It was in film two, when Prime was fighting a bunch of Decepticons, he was outnumbered, and he ripped apart a Decepticon's face with rusty hooks. And it was so slow and deliberate and so sadistic that it's like, no, that that's not Optimus Prime. You're fucked up here. 
At the end of the day, the Prime movie must dispense with the idea of this guy as a flawless hero and make it clear that when he's being the best version of himself as a leader, it's because he encourages the people who follow him to be the best versions of themselves. He should be grave and gentle and stern, self-doubting, wary of anger in himself, and it should be clear that to exhibit these fine qualities takes a toll on him, as it does for good fathers. And at the end, he can meet with Bumblebee as the Autobots fall to Earth. But on the other side of the country, the Decepticons are also making landfall. Austin Wilden asks, if one Transformers solo movie had to be about a Decepticon, who would you pick, assuming it would turn out at least as good a movie as Bumblebee? That would be film three. Starscream. Not Megatron. <laughs> His lieutenant has far more personality and Megatron is better off observed from outside, especially because we don't want to push the Decepticon leader too close to complexity and get a slew of Megatron is right! Think pieces. Megatron is a bully and a megalomaniac are just fucking nuts and he cannot empathise. He is a bastard and he won't be entertaining or engaging unless he has Starscream to butt heads with. Starscream is Iago in Othello, as well as Iago in Aladdin. We get his unreliable narration from the very beginning, much like Iron Man 3. He describes things going on, which is very self-gratifying for him, and it makes him seem awesome, while we see what is clearly the opposite. The Autobots are brave, not pathetic fools! Their fight is just, and Starscream and his cronies are clearly making their world worse. Then they come to Earth to make our planet worse too. Much like the Lego movie, this is a secret satire snuck in the back door of a crowd-pleasing blockbuster. We get to see the rise to prominence of a wretched scumbag that we kind of root for anyway, but it's clear at every turn where he could do the right thing and elects not to for selfish reasons. He is charismatic and other Decepticons flock to him and Megatron, but it is clear to us that Megatron and Starscream, while they rely upon one another, they also hate each other and they wish the other was dead. Starscream sticks with Megatron because he likes the idea of going after power and how easy just taking it is. Megatron keeps Starscream around because he is predictable and he knows how to push this snivelling creep's buttons. It can be made abundantly clear that there is something broken in all of the Decepticons, a refusal to see what they're doing as weak or petty or just plain wrong. They make up all kinds of excuses as they talk to one another and the whole atmosphere is toxic and pitiful, amusingly framed but exhausting if you actually had to live there. Much like Prime and Bumblebee, Starscream meets a human being, an African-American Air Force pilot named Jay, who immediately, like John Cena, sees him as a threat to the planet. Starscream captures her and forces her to tell him about humans. Again, Jay gives him misinformation and we start to really like her, as she starts to pry into his personal history. She presses all of his buttons, much like Megatron, to convince him to stab Megatron in the back and take leadership of the Decepticons himself. 
judging that a neurotic, power-hungry schemer is better than a genocidal tyrant. Starscream cannot hide his interest in human beings. Jay convinces him that Megatron passing them off as inferior lifeforms is going to be his downfall, unless it somehow comes sooner. Jay's personal issue is that she's been turned down for promotion so many times that she's begun to lose her personal drive, and she's becoming embittered. Starscream demands a reconnaissance mission from her, and she takes him out across America, observing the human life beneath them as they fly westwards. By the time they reach Arizona, Starscream is finding it hard not to be impressed by the landscape of this organic planet. Let's remember, of course, they come from a very metal world. On the surface, he always comes across as sociopathic, but there is something under there. He hides it well, but they both whoop with excitement as he threads through the Grand Canyon. Jay then takes him out over the Pacific and they cross the water and look in on Japan and Russia, Europe and Africa, eventually tripping a lot of air defense systems. They have to land and hide, and Jay recalls her wingman getting shot down because of her refusal to back away from a contested territory. It becomes apparent, though she can't put it into words, that Jay is making herself pay a penance, staying out there and flying in dangerous scenarios, rather than retreating to the safety behind a desk. Deliberately being truculent to her own disadvantage. Starscream recalls his wingman, Skyfire, and how the two of them actually had a pretty optimistic outlook on what they could achieve. Skyfire was always very direct, and Starscream admired that in him. He doesn't say it out loud, but that's a quality he admires in Megatron too. Then Skyfire was killed under similar circumstances to Jay's partner, and Starscream made a decision about his life. The only way he was going to get what he wanted was by subterfuge, feigning compliance while seeking advantage. Eventually, Starscream does attempt a coup on Megatron and things go terribly wrong. Jay moves to escape but takes pity on him and saves his life before she leaves. She then rejoins the Air Force for an all-out dogfighting battle against the Decepticons that gets joined by the Autobots, culminating in a battle atop the Hoover Dam between Prime and Megatron. Starscream goes in for the kill to shoot Optimus Prime in the back, but Jay intervenes and Starscream holds off in a moment of uncharacteristic mercy. Prime defeats Megatron and the Decepticons leave with their broken leader as the Autobots gather around the now wounded Prime. Jack Burns, that's John Cena, honours Jay for her role in the battle. His new codename is Duke, but let's keep that in the background for now, shall we? <laughs> the Autobots pledge to protect the humans while the Decepticons return, and at the Decepticon base, Starscream has Megatron buried in concrete and crowns himself as leader of the Decepticons. The last screamed words we hear are, I STILL FUNCTION! What a Starscream then tells Soundwave that if they're really going to conquer the planet, they can't just do it by force, they must be subtle and stay in disguise. Soundwave asks what the best disguises will be. Starscream projects a hologram of human beings walking the streets and gloats them. Cut to the end credits, the music sung by Starscream himself, accompanied by the Decepticons as a heavy metal band, and it's Painkiller by Judas Priest.
So that's my pitch for the opening salvo of three Transformers movies. What would you guys like to see in a future movie or series? And by the way, the difference between me and uh, Pat Oswalt filibustering for an hour and going, Thanos! Thanos then comes into the Transformers universe is that rather than just putting down a list of every single thing from fandom I want to see, it's mainly focused on character dynamics of just a few characters and keeping the kind of like fan knob massaging to a bare minimum. There's some solid storytelling in there, and I, I, I would be quite happy to watch those Transformers movies. I, I, um, I'd struggle to follow it. I can't think of anything that I'd want to add to the Transformers universe that goes beyond that. Oh, well. I thought you meant I'll, I'll struggle to follow it while watching it. I'd, oh, make it, no, I'd, get, no. I'd keep it very like simple so that kids could go, yeah. this is fun, but these are bad guys. Yeah. I, uh, I think doing a road movie as a, as a sequel to this is a very good idea. I mm-hmm. can't believe that the Transformers, which turn into vehicles... <laughs> Like we haven't done a a people on a road movie sort of thing with the Transformers as such, and yeah, so not really like stopping like, and talking and stuff. There's lots of shots of them driving, like expensive money shots to advertise yeah. cars, but there's no, then they're not like we don't stay with them. You just go oh, and now they're there. Carry on, sorry. Yeah, but with with Prime, I mean, that's just a, a perfectly sound like. Oh, of course, he's a trucker. He's got a thing to take to a place, and so he and Optimus are going to go to take to a there. Place. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So just do a road me- movie. It's yeah. No, I really like that particular idea. I I would also agree that you would want to hold off on doing too much world building, and I I would definitely want. To, John Cena to appear again, but that's partially because I just really like John Cena and I want him to show up in more big movies. He was great, yeah. I was going to suggest almost the same thing as Brendan did with the second movie being, you know, Bumblebee and Prime as a sort of a buddy road movie with a different human pass, like a, a human passenger in, you know, Prime. And because he has the, he doesn't have the, you know, busted voice box or whatever. He can mm. actually have conversations with the guy in the cockpit as they're talking or the girl in the cockpit or however they decide to do that. Um, but then, you know, that'd be, you know, like he said, something we have to get from, we have to, to, you know, either find a thing that's on the other side of the country or we have to take a thing to another place that they just means that they have to go to a lot of places and have adventures along the way. Um, probably with with John Cena's character in there at some point, maybe following them, tracking them, making sure that they're, you know, really are the good guys that he kind of thought that they were. Um, maybe jumping in to help a little bit at one point or another. Uh, but then that third movie would be the big... The end of the second movie was where the um, like the Decepticons show up, and then the third movie was going to be... It was kind of like the Return of the King with the big army battle at the... You know, that that whole thing is about. Like, well, now we have to defend against yeah. the Decepticons here. We have to keep them at bay and figure something else out. That was my One of the things I like yours better. <laughs> I like the idea of them fighting on the Hoover Dam because it's relatively far away from people, although it's an important place that needs to not be damaged. And there's some great scale there as well. You can get some great helicopter views. And, and also, like, you can get people around them to make it them seem big and dangerous. You can get flying things and ground things. And like, there's there's other better places for, for it, probably. But just also the idea of Megatron and Prime fighting with the, the laser axe and the laser flail like on top of the Hoover Dam is, is just awesome. Possible B-plot to the, the Prime movie is that there's another Autobot on Earth and another Decepticon. And the Autobot is Mirage, who is a spy and nice. he can turn invisible. But 
he can't reveal himself to Prime because that would alert the Decepticon, whoever that might be, to Prime's presence. So the, these two are trying to keep are playing keep away with Prime while they're going across country. And the thing about Mirage is that he hates Earth. He doesn't like being on Earth. It's 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 full of dirt and organic things, yeah. and just it's it's gross. And he doesn't like being there. And that's that that could be interesting to see him interact with humans. You see an Autobot who doesn't like organics, who doesn't immediately fall in love with the humans, and he's supposed and he's, to be a good guy as well. Yeah, he's he's a good guy, but he's really just super uncomfortable, mm. and he's very he's very posh too. So that could be funny. Yeah. Uh, just to see, just to see him try to come to terms with, okay, this is the situation. I don't like it, but I've I've got a soldier on. You know, I've got to keep this Decepticon away from Prime. Yeah. Grumbling is so much more fun to watch than aggression. If you remember Ironhide, yes. and all these movies keep sticking his guns right in everyone's faces. Mm-hmm. It's like, do you want me to destroy these parents? It's like, would you please? <laughs> but still, you're a monster. <laughs> yeah. So what else do you want to see in future movies following Bumblebee? Just a general focus on characters Mm. and how they interact with each other and the world and humans and their motivations rather than an overarching, this is where they come from and this is how they shoot the guns and this is, you know, it goes pew pew, go, yeah. It's the, the the Bay films were very lifeless in that regard. There wasn't there wasn't anything behind the optics, so to speak. Whereas with Bumblebee, I could tell you everything about you know Bumblebee himself hmm. just from watching this because it, it focused on his character. And it, 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 there, there's a lot of fascinating characters in the Transformers uh, franchise, and you you pick one or two out and put them in a movie together. And there's some interesting interactions. I've I've read literally tons of fanfic in which this people just pick two disparate characters and throw them in, into a situation and watch them fight it out. Mm. And it's been some of the best reading I've ever done. And it's Transformers. What I said about uh, tra- um, Starscream, you know, becoming interested in humans. Obviously, if that's way too much of a stretch for Starscream himself. You could divide a lot of what I said there amongst a couple of other Decepticons. What I'm suggesting is that rather than the Decepticons all turning up and going, ah, I'm a Decepticon, and just all being exactly the same, just like, you know, flipping the bird and like doing pelvic pumps if they're little, or just like being like, I'm going to carve you into pieces if they're big. That's that's all they are. Give them different personality quirks and make it that like a couple of them you could actually see them maybe being decent bots if they didn't constantly choose to hang around with these fuckheads yeah so yeah i mean i, I think elaborating on the decepticons kind of has to to happen because i um what are they called shatter and was it one 
drop kicking. And drop kicking this. <laughs> they came across as like totally evil and scheming. And, and uh, you know, you can definitely get more than just those two. But they were very distinct from each other. One of them was clearly like, I want to do this. The other was no, 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 wait. So they were at least distinct from one another. Mm. And yeah, I could, I could did, name two or three off the top of my head that, that you know, a couple of Decepticons that would be pretty interesting to, to put in a movie. Example. Because because they're, they're not just cackling, rubbing their hands together evil, you know, mm-hmm. want to squish the humans. Uh, Thundercracker. Mm-hmm. He, at least in the IDW comics, uh, he he basically just sort of low-key leaves the Decepticons because he doesn't want to be in the war anymore. And he, he takes up on Earth, and he becomes fascinated with human media and human storytelling. Hmm. But in a completely wrong-headed way. Like, he... <laughs> he he starts uh, writing screenplays, and it is the most hilarious thing because his main character is a a person called Susan Jernier, and she has a boyfriend named Josh Boyfriend. <laughs> She's a Mary Susan. H- hang on. Yeah. Does, and, does Thundercracker it, disguise himself as somebody called Michael Bay? No, no, he doesn't write screenplays. <laughs> no, no, no. He, 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 and he Thundercracker would be less disgusting than Aaron Kruger, I can guarantee. <laughs> I was going to say oh, Zack Snyder. Yeah. You, you get snippets of his screenplay in the comic as he's writing them in his head, and he's going places, and he's he's telling his, his, his human... Uh, liaison about this this screenplay she's reading it she's going Thundercracker this is terrible I I, I don't know how to tell you but the, yeah, everything's flat people just say what they feel out loud and it's just you're what made me what I am Megatron the whole time I was a seeker what I was really seeking was your love people don't talk like that the most hilarious thing and seeing that in a movie where where did one of the one of the quote-unquote bad guys uh is is sort of respectful of his adversaries but gets it completely wrong is is just funny to me hmm. i got the uh, um a lot of my cues from for those two stories that i described there from a, a series called transformers spotlight uh, mm-hmm. Was the um, one you were talking about with Thundercracker actually from Spotlight? Because I've got, I'm looking at that right now. Just like each individual issue focuses on a different bot. Well, is it, the the thing with Thundercracker sort of plays out in different issues. Oh, it's okay. not his. It's not like a, a thing. Right. Uh, I think in in the in the Transformers Christmas special uh, from a couple years ago, you get a a Night Before Christmas spoof written by Thundercracker, <laughs> and it stars Santa and. Megatron dressed as Santa, and <laughs> it is the most wonderful thing. But that's the thing. Like, if you read through Spotlight, you go, "Wow, these aren't all just like you know that they they may have started out like just inanimate toys that were given mm-hmm. to Marvel uh, um, creators and, and told make them into someone." Um, but they've they've developed over the years and, and they've gotten their own personality within the fan community, which means there is stuff for you to go to when you put your movies together and mm-hmm. like, I, I, honestly now after having seen Bumblebee I would far rather have a load of little movies than big all out you know we've got to save the galaxy thing galaxy's gonna be fine it doesn't matter about that earth isn't gonna be destroyed and clearly it doesn't matter if Cybertron gets destroyed because in the next one it'll be fine again so all of these these fake stakes we keep get, being given are pointless however individual character yes we can focus on that 
So my conclusion is, for future movies, Decepticons are the key. You can have all the interesting fun interplay with Autobots that you want, but ultimately what they're up against is important. And for fans of Transformers, the Decepticons have always been a huge deal. It's easy to do them all as just psychopaths with guns who just want to hurt people. It's hard, it's challenging, and it's interesting to make them different. So you can still have your extremely dangerous, malevolent ones, but it's those with dimensionality that people will flock to. And this is the most important thing, and it concerns the IDW comics, which I have yet to submerge myself in. But there's got to be something to work towards. The original novelization of the third movie, Dark of the Moon, rather than Prime executing Megatron and then Sentinel Prime, his mentor, he defeats Sentinel Prime and then forms an accord with Megatron. Haven't read the novelization, not felt the need. But it could have been as straightforward a, listen, we could tear apart two planets in our desperation to destroy each other. How about, I'll stay on Earth, you go back to Cybertron. Now in the end, Michael Bay decided to go against what was in the novelization, which I'm assuming was based on the original script because it had leaked and people already knew about it. So he wanted to surprise people by having Optimus Prime rip Megatron's spine out. Didn't surprise me, this Optimus Prime was super violent. And that's what kind of a psychopath Bay is. If, if your ending is that interchangeable, between peace and vengeance can just be changed on a whim, maybe you're not the person to be doing a war film. See, the Bay films always pitch the very black and white view of war, which is that it can only be won by the utter annihilation of our enemies. So I'm guessing the Southern Peace Treaty didn't fit with his program. But if that doesn't come out of nowhere, if you've actually had bots on both sides considering some kind of truce, some kind of lasting peace, that's something to work towards. That's something fragile that could see allegiances being changed all the time. That keeps it moving. That's really interesting. If it's just the same conflict over and over again, literally you've just seen the numbers drop substantially over the past few years. People get bored of it. Make your Decepticons interesting and complex, and that doesn't mean have mass murderers be interesting. Maybe kind of dial back on the mass murder in general. Okay, so Peter Cullen is currently 77 years old. Frank Welker is 72. I'm hoping he's around to voice not only Megatron, but maybe a couple of Decepticons and Soundwave as well. Mm -hmm. Either Steve Blum doing his uh, prime version of uh, uh, Starscream. Lord Megatron, you are... You're healed! Praise the old spark. It is a miracle! Oh, it will be a miracle, all right, Starscream. If you survive what I have planned for you. Or someone doing a really great Chris Latter, but like slightly <laughs> softened so that it won't kill him. 
and it isn't quite so grating because an entire movie of that would get yeah. a little wear a little thin. Yeah. Oh jeez. I mean, or you could go right. Okay, from now on, after like aside from Prime and, and Megatron, we have these guys voiced by celebrities who will actually commit to the character and like like com- do it in the way that John C. Riley did Ralph in Wreck It Ralph the first one mm-hmm. I like the idea of if we ever do get a Starscream movie that because it's being told from his perspective mm-hmm. instead of that like whiny scratchy voice he's got this big deep manly voice <laughs> <laughs> and I said because that's how he sees himself right Yeah. I unleashed, I unleashed my, my battle cry to strike fear into the hearts of our enemies pathetic fools <laughs> <laughs> you led me into this trap I, I picture it in Starscream narrating his own movie in the same way Cusco did in, in oh, yes. the Emperor's New Yeah, <gasps> totally. He'll, he'll just stop it and and get in front of the screen and say, that's not what happened at all. They could right. totally do that, and we would accept that from Starscream. <laughs> yes. Oh, I would love it. Yeah. Oh, man. One thing that... You know what's never happened in any of these movies, Bumblebee included? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Where's the Transformers theme? (laughs) Seriously, a Hans Zimmer orchestrated Transformer theme? That's a classic! It's got a melancholy tone to it. It's stirring, and I think Prime might be the one to do it. Oh, you know that what I'd also sense. like to see in Prime at some point what? is the this, this scene transition with Decepticon facing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Would, yeah. It would be weird in the cinema, but again, uh, okay, uh, honestly. Doing 3D and have your front row go, what the hell? <laughs> For your Starscream movie? They, they, you... they could sneak it in by zooming in on the Autobot sigil on one of the, oh, the bots themselves and then God, zooming out yes. on, on just, the, the, yeah. the Decepticon sigil on one of the Decepticons. Yeah. Just do it once and have the orchestra go just quietly so that everyone goes ah. The audience would lose their shit. Yeah. Stealth reference. <laughs> also possible idea. I know you're so desperate to not have them on projects uh, uh, studios, but you might want to get for the Starscream thing I just pitched. You can have that, by the way. Um, <laughs> Lord and Miller. They're quite yes. good at making movies that are funny and subversive. Yes. Uh, so uh, what does the soundtrack lend proceeding? I'd say that ties in with the 80s nostalgia element. Uh-huh. They're, mm-hmm. they're all 80s tracks, but slightly to the left. They're not the, the, the obvious massively ones. obvious They played ones. briefly Take On Me, and then they, they moved on from rolled it. Us. They rickrolled us. <laughs> they did that in the trailer. Like, from the like, word go, I was like, oh, this Bumblebee's going to suck. And then I was told, Travis Knight. Travis Knight, well, if it's not... If there's any way of it not sucking, and then I saw the teaser, and I was like... This is going to be really good. And it turned out to be exactly as the teaser promised. But so you got the Smiths, you got Howard Jones, you got Bon Jovi, you got Duran Duran, you got Steve Winwood, uh, Sam Cooke, uh, Tears for Fears, Oingo Boingo, Rob Basin, DJ Easy Rock, Sammy Hagar, Simple Minds, Haley Steinfeld herself, and briefly Stan Bush. So uh, the, the, it's, it, it gave the flavour, as you say, Sharon, the, the idea that you were sort of there. 
there was kind of a Scorsese thing where it was like the jukebox, like it kept, especially at the beginning when we were being introduced to Charlie, it was like, right, remember this song? Do you remember this song? And yet they all kind of tied in with uh, with what we were seeing. And they're more more slightly off the beaten track. Like you don't have the like the big ACDC or Michael Jackson or Madonna. It's not yeah. like the just the the biggest most obvious off the top of your head 80s cuts that you would that you would expect and so it's it just seems like it gives it slightly bit more personality than just playing the the radio station from vice city or something yeah didn't feel too stunty and uh, and good choices it feels like maybe knight went through his record collection or his, his tape collection and went yep that one yep that one <laughs> and the, the fact that Clearly, Charlie liked the Smiths a lot, and then when Bumblebee plays it back to her, that's a connection. It was not accidental. That was all carefully sculpted. It's not on the level with the Guardian soundtracks, but it feels authentic. Mm. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement as well of the way that media is the glue that holds our generations together. The, mm. This shared, we love this music, and we love this movie, mm. and, and all that. That's our common language and that's her way of speaking to B it's her way of speaking to her dad even the mm. the vinyl she doesn't touch the vinyl until yeah. it becomes okay to start reconnecting with her father and then she uses a song that he particularly adored yeah. also worth noting a song that is used in another movie a different yeah. version of it but another movie to specifically represent a connection between somebody who is alive and somebody who is dead yeah Again, that didn't seem accidental, and um, it, it was handled in a very tender way. Which, well, that like that specific choice could have been like you do realise that in Ghost she's missing her fiance, and then that an unchained melodies is about a man in prison longing for his wife, and that doesn't necessarily translate to father daughter, but the actual tenderness of the song absolutely forms that connection. Mm. And it's it's not about and Steinfeld's performance. It's not about her yeah. relationship with her dad at that point. It's about trying to connect with him through a song that he particularly loved. Big Mouth Strikes Again by the Smiths at the beginning is about somebody who no longer feels comfortable with the human race. Things Can Only Get Better by Howard Jones seems like a reaction on Charlie's part to the overt cheeriness of everybody else telling her to get on with her life, not feeling the pain she's feeling. Higher Love by Steve Winwood is about two people connecting while the rest of the world melts away in order to jumpstart themselves and be more aware of the world. The Smith song Girlfriend in a Coma is about somebody regretful, trying to say goodbye. And as far as Unchained Melody goes, Charlie is the one imprisoned, unable to say goodbye to her father because she doesn't want to.
and Greggy TL asks, just for fun, here is a question to everyone on the show. If you were a Transformer, what would your preferred alt mode be? Size changing is okay. Hard mode, Alex can't choose podcasting equipment. How would I be able to be in battle? I'm going to turn into a microphone. (laughs) I wasn't gonna, but thanks for thinking that that does in fact exemplify me. But carry on. Um, Theo, because you probably thought about this more than anyone else. (laughs) How dare you? Um, uh, Am I wrong? How dare you call me out like that? (laughs) (laughs) Some kind of small hatchback. Oh, like a little nice. a mini bot. Yeah, yeah, just, just yeah, some yeah. Well, not that small, but you know, like not, Cliff not Jumper. Small. Poor Cliff yeah. Jumper, by the way. Yeah, I, I took that by the way as at the beginning of Transformers Jumper. Prime, Cliff Jumper gets horribly killed, and then in the like middle beginning of this, Cliff Jumper gets horribly killed. It was almost like a signifier saying, "Yeah, poor Cliff is not going to be around for this," but. We've been watching Prime. We've done our homework. It was like a little nod and a wink. Side note, by the way, Cliff Jumper's compatriot in Prime was RC. I could watch an RC movie, most definitely. Yeah. In fact, Lyra said her preferred team up for a future Transformers movie after Bumblebee was RC and Bulkhead. Yes, please. Oh, sorry, carry on, Theo. So, uh, any particular hatchback or? Uh, well, I'm I'm partial to my Kia Soul. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that thing for 10 years now and it hasn't given me a look of trouble. That is so, nice. You know, I, I picture that, that sort of Autobot being a reliable, maneuverable, small and agile. I could see lounge. you as a Kia Soul. Uh, what, what color? <laughs> green. Of course. Yes. Cool. Like a, a slightly different green to that one of the twins so you wouldn't be uh, uh, interpreted in any way regarding yes. that disgusting yes. racial stereotype. But yeah. Definitely. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brendan? I would be a Dinobot because it's a dinosaur that's a robot. <laughs> Any particular species? Grimlock's already got the T-Rex on lockdown, so I'd, I'd probably go for for the Utah Raptor. Okay. Hmm. Jesse? I would be a quadcopter drone, like Aww. a reconnaissance, like a, a, a recon vehicle, just a small thing that could get in and out to places and take notes and capture video and then go back. I feel like Laserbeak might turn into one of those if he ever turns up. Oh, no, hang on. It's way too... Like, the tech doesn't work. Maybe in the future there'll be those. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's a good alt mode for Laserbeak, definitely. Sharon? Paramedic bike. Paramedic bike. But uh, if you're a bike, then you've got to have a sexy woman on her. No, uh, no. No? A holographic <laughs> sexy woman? Can I have a holographic paramedic? Because <laughs> that's what they're for. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> Not the paramedics can't Sorry, be Sorry, I was going by women, Michael Bay rules. Okay, yeah. we'll allow female Transformers, yes. but they've got to have tits. I just, I love the fact that paramedic <laughs> bikes have these massive panniers on the side, and like they have all bike. this equipment, and they mm-hmm. well, yeah, they're... The idea is that you get them out as quickly as possible. And I like BMW bikes and a lot of the paramedic bikes are BMWs. So your robot mode would be kind of similar to RC then? In Uh, Prime? Yes. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah, there you go. Somewhere between RC and Ratchet. That's me. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And I would be a Subaru Impreza. We we see them so much in uh, uh, blue or silver. So I think I'd be red. With like nice. flame decals on the side, <laughs> and I'd probably be kind of a hot roddy type uh, character. But uh, yeah, I, I just I've I've always loved four wheel drives, specifically in, in in video games, because they are just so much easier to just just get back on the road than uh, than uh, front wheel or, uh, or rear. 
drives, and uh, I've just always particularly warmed to that particular car. It's fast. It's not like ridiculously flashy or impractical, and I wouldn't have like lights underneath or like, anything dumb like that. But uh, yeah, red Subaru Impreza with some nice detailing. The other thing, of course, Subaru Impreza is very, very good at the digital drift, and I am all about drifting. If you enjoyed this show and you aren't yet a patron, consider that if you support us for five bucks a month, you can get access to, amongst well over a hundred bonus material podcasts, you get the cutting class episode of deleted material from this Bumblebee podcast. That is over an hour of extra stuff, including hauling Michael Bay over the coals a whole bunch of times, talking about my edited version of his first film and the box office success and failure mountain that those first five followed financially. Here's a clip. Plus, the guy they put in charge of that was Akiva Goldsman, the guy who wrote (laughs) Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and the Dark Tower movie and the Titans TV series where Robin says fuck Batman, and iRobot and Lost in Space and who wrote the story for Bay Film 5, which failed in their eyes, and King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which lost Warner Brothers $26 million, and Winter's Tale, which lost Warner Brothers $44 million, and why does everyone keep putting Akiva Goldsman in charge? And our $15 patrons get a sponsor credit every episode, so I'm going to do this in an Optimus Prime voice. Thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Haskell, Matthew A. Cybertron, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Sean Doran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole. Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron LeCluze, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Thank you to all of you. Okay, and I think that about wraps up Bam Blech. Okay, and I think that about wraps up Bumblebee. We shall see what the future holds when we get there. In the meantime, where can people find your work? Start with Jesse. Uh, you can find me at uh, my podcast it's called Recorded Tomorrow. It's all about um, time travel and how to use effectively in fiction. Uh, you can see it on iTunes or um, Google Play or all of those. Uh, if you can't find it there, you can go to recordedtomorrow.podbean.com or on Twitter at Time Travel Pod. And Brendan? You can uh, find my longer stuff on normannerd.blogspot.com, my slightly shorter stuff on Synapse, that's C I N A P S E.co, and my shortest stuff on Twitter at BLC Agnew. And Theo? Uh, I'm on Twitter at A Thousand Days of Rain, and I'm also on this fantastic podcast called New Century. Uh, It's this alternate history uh, zombie apocalypse kind of thing, but it's very cool. (laughs) I've I've listened to that one. It's it's not bad. Alex, I think you'd dig it. I I think I would. (laughs) Seems like it's made by good people. 
<clears throat> Next week, we have our now thrice-promised episode on Goodwill Hunting. I swear <laughs> this time it's coming out. Followed by... as Well, we didn't know because December was a packed month. You may have seen it. Um, <laughs> followed by a special episode the week after, which we weren't originally planning, but now we are going to give you, which covers not one, not two, not three, but four Robin Williams films in one go. Bicentennial Man, One Hour Photo, License to Wed... And probably the one most of you want to hear the most, Mrs. Doubtfire. We will see you all in the new year for that. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And roll out. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course. Transcending us through space and time It's holding up It keeps you and me intertwined What's a pipe dream if you ain't trying to do it? What's a heartbreak if you ain't crying? I'll do it What's a sunset if you ain't riding into it? Let's drive into it Cause I'm bringing you back That you're gone, but I swear that you're here It's a feeling that won't disappear And you're bringing me back to life I was looking for something that I couldn't find It's a feeling you give me inside Our history Our history They lift me up They flow like electricity What's a pipe dream if you ain't trying to do it? What's a heartbreak if you ain't crying? I'll do it What's a sunset if you ain't riding into it? Let's drive into it Cause I'm bringing you back To life Yeah, I know that you're gone I swear that you're here It's a feeling that won't disappear And you're bringing me back To life I was looking for something that I couldn't find It's a feeling you give me Here it's a feeling that won't disappear And you're bringing me back